Welcome to Historically Thinking, a program devoted to all kinds of historical knowledge and to the ways that we achieve it. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Our website is historicallythinking.org, where you can subscribe, find more information about our guests, links, and related readings. Our email address is mail at historicallythinking.org. We'd love to hear from you. Hello, my guest today is Nick Proctor, professor of history at Simpson College in Indianola, Iowa. He's here to talk with us about a previous topic on historically thinking, which um, interested many of you, the pedagogical method called reacting to the past. Nick Proctor has now authored or co-authored four games in the Reacting series and serves on the board of the Reacting to the Past Consortium. Uh, Nick, thanks for being with us. Thank you. Thank you for asking me. So once upon a time, uh, you, you said in the notes that you're, you've been professionally focused for the last 10 years. Your entire professional focus has been on reacting, as, as we'll call it from here on out. But once upon a time... Um, you were a normal historian. Uh, what did? How did you become a historian? Uh, and and what did you work and decide to work on? Well, I, I think that I I came at being a historian from several different directions. One is uh, that I spent a lot of my time growing up with my grandparents. So uh, so some of it was just so that I could understand what they were talking about when they were referencing the Great Depression or World War II. Uh, second, my grandfather was a, wrote as a historian. He did uh, histories of the American Civil War and the American West. Uh, he was also a novelist. So um, to understand where he was coming from, uh, getting interested in history and understanding history was, uh, was good. Uh, I think that I, I've sort of ended up working on historical games with reacting. Uh, historical games, board games, and, and hex-based war games were actually one of the things that also propelled me towards history. Uh, and they very early on dispelled the notion that history was the memorization of, of names and dates, and instead suggested that history was uh, a series of exciting high stakes decisions made by people with agendas who were operating with incomplete information so uh so so that pulled me into it to uh the the uh the drama of history i guess um and uh the third thing that really drew me to history was trying to figure out why the world was the way it was uh, i think that one of the things in particular I turned to history to try to figure out was uh, to understand what racism was and how it functioned. It seemed so nonsensical to me that people would be racists, um, but a lot of people seemed really pretty determined to be racists. Uh, so I turned to history to try to figure out where these ideas came from. Um, so I think that all those things combined pushed me towards it. I resisted being a historian for a long time. I, I think that I went through about a half a dozen different majors as an undergraduate. Uh -huh. And uh, and then I initially went to graduate school and got a master's in diplomacy at University of Kentucky. But uh, but about halfway through that program, I, I 
really realized that that getting a history PhD and and teaching history and studying history was was going to be the best way to go. So you ended up writing uh, on hunting in the old South, correct? Yes. Um, which certainly dealt with questions of race and and violence, um, no doubt about that. And uh, right, yeah. That, well, that was sort of one of the things, one of the tasks I set for myself in finding a dissertation topic was that it had to it had to be something that dealt with either sex, drugs, or violence. <laughs> Uh, and uh, violence against animals uh, is understudied, I guess, because there's so much violence against humans. Um, but uh, but but hunting fit the bill for for that criterion. Mm-hmm. So you uh, get a job at Simpson College eventually, and um, here you are with a nice book on on hunting, and um, all of a sudden you encounter reacting to the past. Could you refresh our memories of those who, um, or tell us, those of us who haven't listened to our interview with Mark Carnes, uh, who pioneered the concept, uh, what exactly is reacting to the past? Reacting is a series of immersive historical role-playing games that are designed for use in undergraduate courses. They, uh, they're dependent upon complicated rich texts and complicated rich roles so consequently they're designed to be played out over the course of of usually several weeks of of class time in order to give the students an opportunity to grapple with those ideas and come to understand them uh, both through their own eyes but also through the eyes of whatever role that they're playing so, uh, so, so this was a very good fit with many of my interests in history. All all reacting games are are high stakes. All reacting games are are dealing with interesting, important, and complicated ideas. So, how did you come across reacting? Well, it was actually a colleague of mine, Owen Duncan, who has retired now. Uh, forwarded me a little article about reacting that showed up in the Chronicle uh, mm-hmm. in maybe 2003. Uh, he knew that I was doing game-based stuff in my classes uh, in, independently. And uh, on on I pretty much thought that I might be the only person doing this kind of thing. <laughs> so uh, well, just a- certainly there wasn't anybody else on my campus or anybody at any of the institutions that I'd attended yeah. that, w- that were doing it. What, 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 so, uh, just a moment. What were, uh, what were some of the things that you were doing? I'm, I'm always curious about because I've, I've noticed this with a lot of people uh, doing reacting that they are doing some sort of game role play stuff in classes before they discover reacting. What, what, what well, I was sure I was doing several things. One was I was I was modifying existing board games to to use them in class. So there, there's a classic board game called Diplomacy, which is a, a 1914 European geopolitics game, which is very very simple, it, like checkers simple. And I was using that in a Western Civ class. I modified the rules for that. I was also messing around with various online things where students were role-playing families and they had to make decisions for those families every couple days of class. 
and they had to whatever they wanted their family to do they had to find a historical counterpart to that they had to find a precedent mm-hmm. so if they wanted to um it and i used it in the first half of us survey so if they wanted to engage in the fur trade, they had to go read something about the fur trade. If they wanted to be uh, uh, land speculators and become fabulously wealthy, they could do that. They just had to research how land speculation actually worked. Um, so that, that that was pretty interesting. In, in retrospect, it was pretty cumbersome. Uh, I was moving towards a reacting-like thing because the the moments of the class that was doing the online thing that were most exciting and engaging were when the students would discuss a particular issue in class mm-hmm. and they would have to try to make a decision as a community uh and 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 so it was in in many ways what reacting is in terms of format just when i found the reacting games they they were a lot better designed and and well thought out than the stuff that i was doing um, so you read about reacting and you start using the games. What did you I, – I, I, is that the case? I mean, is that how it works? Yeah, well, the, this was sort of – I think that Carnes got a lot of email after <laughs> that article ran in the Chronicle. Yeah. Uh, because I emailed him a couple times, and he admitted a little sheepishly that there was a while where he just wasn't responding to email because he got so much of it. But this was in the days when, on the web, which was a, a not, which was a pretty new thing, um, you could sort of walk back a URL and sometimes get into a root directory yeah, and, yeah. and and poke around. Uh, so I did that with Barnard's directory, and I found. The material that eventually became the game book for the for the Democracy in Athens game, mm-hmm. um, and I've told I've told Carnes this, so I downloaded it. Well, you're I was so, you're like, certainly well, telling you're not going to reply to no. my email. I'm just going to take the freaking <laughs> game. Hey, it was the uh, it was the early days. We did, everyone did stuff like that. We didn't know it was right. Slow. Yeah, right. Yeah, it's it, information wants to be free. It wants um, to be free. Yeah. So uh, so I, I I got this text and I. I read the little role descriptions that are in the game book, which are about one one hundredth the length of the actual role sheets, but uh, which I didn't have. I just mm-hmm. had the game book. I couldn't <laughs> find the role sheets. So I wrote my own role sheets and used the game. And even with that sort of top of the chart, it worked better than the things that I had written. Uh-huh. So I was like, well, this obviously is good stuff. Um, and I poked around a little bit more, and and at that point, the Carnes had gotten a grant uh, to have some reacting conferences that, that were open to all institutions. So I went to one of those. To, to find out more. So what did you discover about using uh, reacting? This is like witness time um, uh, from a person who was just starting to use uh, reacting for the first time. Uh, what did you find out about student engagement with it? Um, how students, uh, well, you know, you can, you can fill out the rest of what I'm asking. How, sure. How well, well, I'll give the little story of the first time that I, I used reacting in, in class with, 
a published game book and the real roll sheets, uh, because this was the sort of test. Uh, and it, it was the Democracy in Athens game again, but I, but I was running it legitimately. So it, it was a class where about 90% of the students were first year. And, but there were a couple of people in there who had had me for class before. So I asked one of them to uh, – actually, both of them to give speeches on the first day because I knew that they would do a pretty good job, and I could assure them that it would be fine if things screwed up somehow um, because this was an experiment. So both of them did it, and uh, – the first one gave a pretty good speech. She quoted from the Republic, and she made an argument about freedom of expression um, that was pr- problematic in terms of the way that she had read Plato. Mm-hmm. Um, but but that, that was fine as far as I was concerned. She was using the source, and, and we would discuss it. So, um, so she finished her speech, and then one of the students is the president of the assembly – he sort of looks around the room to see if anybody has has questions, and everybody's a little keyed up because they they don't know what's going to happen next. Um, but after sort of doing a few radar sweeps, his eyes come back to me, and everybody sort of starts to relax because they recognize what's happening. A student gives a presentation, and then the professor, but only the professor asks a question or two, <laughs> and then the next person will give a speech, and it will sort of proceed, and they're all like, we've seen this before. Mm-hmm. Um, but then a student raises her hand, and everybody is sort of paying attention again, because this is a, a rare thing to happen. Um, and the student says, she was a biology major, and she'd been pretty quiet in class so far, but she raises her hand, and she says, I have a question. Um, do you remember where you were talking about what Socrates uh, said in terms of of people talking about whatever they want to talk about? Uh, and the person giving the speech is like, "Yes, uh, yes." Uh, can you can you turn to that page and 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 read the quotation that that you used to support that? Um, so now everybody is sort of like thinking a, a second taboo has been broken which is a student listened to another student's speech carefully enough to, like, pluck a specific part of it out, mm-hmm. uh, rather than that was a nice speech. Um, mm-hmm. So she reads it. The person at the lectern now is has sort of gone, has sort of turned pale and is now sort of a blush is creeping up from her neck. Um, but she reads the quotation, and then the biology student says, so what you're saying there is that Socrates is supporting the idea that people should say whatever they want to say, whenever they want to say it, because that gets more ideas into the mix. And the person at the lectern is like, yes. Um, And then the biologist pulls out her copy of The Republic and flips it open. And it's like, that's on page 71, right? (laughs) Uh, And, you know, at this point, all of the students start scrambling to get their copies of the Republic out, Mm -hmm. Um, which mostly were still in their book bags or that sort of thing. Um, And she says, so she reads the quote, and then she says, I think that what we have here is what's called a straw man argument. Because if we look on page 72... 
what Socrates goes on to say is, and then she reads the other the, a quotation from Socrates. And um, so she has the student who gave the speech dead to rights. Mm-hmm. She, she incompletely processed the idea. And she presses her on this, and she, she asks kind of, kind of slyly at this point, so I guess what you could say is that you have misrepresented the ideas of Socrates. Uh, and the person at the lectern is like, yes, I guess you could say that. <laughs> um, thank you. Uh, and, and, and then it goes on. So, and then some other things happen in class, but, the, but that, that was sort of the pinnacle moment. So I, I make sure that I talk to both of the students after class. And, and first, I talked to the student who'd given the speech, mainly to assure her that everything was fine. Mm-hmm. Um, and the first thing that she says when I talk to her is she says, that's the weirdest thing that's ever happened to me in a classroom. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and I say, okay. Um, and, uh, and, I assure, and I say, you know, you'll have an opportunity to rewrite your speech and, and think of this as kind of a peer review opportunity and that sort of thing. Um, and that, but she sort of like plows past that, and she says uh, two things that are really interesting. She says, one, I, I write a second speech, right? Everybody gives two speeches, and they have papers attached to them, and I say, right. She says, good. <laughs> so weird thing number seven, I guess, by that point, <laughs> is student eagerly anticipates additional homework. Yeah, you know, that, yeah. that, that's like a good thing. Then the second thing she said was, Everybody has to give two speeches, right? She'll have to give two speeches, right? <laughs> and people can ask questions about those. And I say, yes, indeed, that's true. Um, so she sort of goes off with a kind of a wahaha, um, plan- planning her revenge. Um, so that sort of suggests a whole bunch of interesting student motivations that are often not usually there in the classroom. Then I talk to the student who asked the question, the brave first asker of the question, and I say, you know, you've been pretty quiet in class so far, um, but today you asked a series of questions, which were great, and they were totally on topic, and and they showed that you had read carefully and thought carefully, so thank you for doing that. Why did you do it? And she pulled out a roll sheet, and she pointed to one of the objectives that read something like, make sure that the teachings of Socrates are never misrepresented. (laughs) And she said, well, she was misrepresenting the teachings of Socrates. And I knew that if I knew that, that you would know that. And if I didn't stop her from doing that, I would, like, miss points, right? Uh, and And that wasn't actually the case. I sort of do a blanket participation grade Uh Um, but that was it for her that was her motivation is she just like wanted to achieve her objectives Mm -hmm. she she didn't really have any higher motivation than that but it was the first time that semester that she had actively participated in class beyond sort of a yes no sort of thing so all of that combined and then the game sort of went on from there but even just the experience of those two students really convinced me that it was a a powerful, m- motivating device. Mm-hmm. Um, people who like the traditional way of doing things, um, because well, we've always done it that way. Um, 
are going to object at, at some point to a reacting enthusiast and say, well, how do you know it's better than the old way? Now, admittedly, people rarely test the old way other than that we give exams and they do bad or they don't do bad. Um, are Have you tried to um, quantify in any way um, the effect of reacting in your classroom? Or if- yeah, I, I have a little bit. Um, I uh, One of the things that I did, and, and I sort of did it in a backwards way, the, mm-hmm. the motive that I had was to write better roll sheets. <laughs> I, I, I wanted to write roll sheets that were more engaging for students. So I, I wrote a survey. Uh, and the questions that I wanted to get to in the survey were to find out for – Students who had a high level of satisfaction with reacting and students who reported being engaged in reacting and students who self-reported um, in sort of more indirect ways what their engagement in reacting was by the number of classes that they had missed compared to their other classes or the number of hours outside of class that they put in compared to their other classes uh, what they had done for reacting. I, I really wasn't trying to test reacting. I, I was just trying to, to correlate this with the sorts of roles that people played. So I did this, and I administered it in my own classes, and then I sent it out and asked other reacting people I knew to administer it in their classes. Um, so I got a pretty good sample size. I think I ended up with about 650 or 700 or something like that wow. from all sorts of different institutions. And and it and it was not um, it wasn't just fans of reacting that took it because a lot of faculty members, myself included, reserved time in a computer lab and we would just troop our students over there and to make sure that everybody in the class responded uh-huh. um, so so that people weren't self-selecting into it. And the thing that I found in that survey is that um, students reported coming to reacting classes much more diligently than they were other classes. They self-reported being more engaged. They self-reported doing much more work outside of class to prepare for being in the class. Um, So those things all all combined really convinced me, um, at least in terms of of student self-perception, that they're more engaged in reacting than they are in traditional pedagogies. Mm-hmm. Um, some people are doing who are much better at designing social science surveys than than I am. I'm a, I'm an amateur at that sort of thing. Um, are putting together a series of studies right now in a book that should be published later this year. Um, Chase Haygood is the uh, at University of Georgia Athens is is really leading that effort. Mm-hmm. Um, so. So I think that there will be crunchier empirical data soon for people to measure. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I, I, I think that and, – and in that, I mean, I lecture. I do traditional discussion. I use the traditional methods. I really see reacting as another arrow in the quiver. Mm-hmm. It's – it's good at what it does. It's powerful at what it does, but it doesn't do everything. I, I want to get back to that in a second because um, as someone – well, I guess this is the – about the – I'm doing the sixth or so, seventh time I've done a reacting uh, game. 
in one of my classes. And I have some some questions for an old hand like yourself. And I'll bring up later in the uh, conversation. But you you went on from doing it in the classroom. Did you then become an author uh, immediately after that, or did you work as an editor or play tester first? I mean, how did that all come about? You've written now, written or co-written uh, four games, correct? Right. Well, maybe more than that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that well, I, I, I sort of bowled my way into it. Um, I, I hadn't really been aggressive in terms of, of academic publication before that. Um, but I, I, I did reacting a few times and I said, well, this is, this is a, a much better framework than the one that I've come up with. So I actually sort of adapted an existing game that I had about frontier negotiations um, into the reacting format and made the the first prototype of of a reacting game that should be published next year probably called forest diplomacy which which is uh, uh, treaty negotiation between Pennsylvania and the Lenape Indians during the the Seven Years' War. Um, I remember it was the second reacting conference that I had gone to. The first time that I had had a conversation with Mark Carnes, I think I sort of lurked to pounce on him as he came out of a room. <laughs> Um, and I had my briefcase, like, with my manuscript for my game printed out and jammed in there. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, in retrospect, it was not that great a manuscript. It had all kinds of problems. But he talked to me about it a little bit. Um, I I haven't sort of gotten – I don't even know if he remembers being approached by this sort of scruffy guy from, from Simpson College. But um, – but I was I, I sort of pushed into the reacting community. Um, I uh, and and started writing. I I sort of had my own thoughts as as I worked on different games. I, I put together a little handbook for reacting game authors, um, and asked him as I was putting it together. It was mainly something that I was planning on just kind of like giving to friends or using to order my ideas and I asked him if it would be okay if if I called it a reacting to the past uh handbook and he was like yeah sure um he he's ex- extraordinarily generous with uh with his ideas and has been extraordinarily generous with reacting and inviting other people into it um, not just to participate in it, but to but to shape it and, and right. to evolve it. Um, and I was just so excited about it. I, you know, I'm a Southern boy, so I I try not to be rude or or to sort of put myself forward and that sort of thing. But uh, I am excited enough about reacting that I I sort of put a lot of those rules by the wayside sometimes. Mm-hmm. I, I, yeah, so. So I just sort of, I kind of bowled my way in. So um, what, um, let's see, you wrote the handbook. Um, what are the components of a, of a reacting game? Um, what do you need to begin with? Well, the first thing that you need is you need a, you need a venue um, where people are going to, people who strongly disagree are going to, are going to be in discussion with one another and a place where some people 
have not yet decided which side of, uh, of a question they're on. I think this is really the key thing for the dynamic of a reacting game, is it's not unlike a mock trial or something like that, but the jury is built into the game. Uh, in reacting jargon, we usually call them indeterminates. Mm. They're people who have not yet decided which way they're going to go, but they have, a, they have agendas of their own. So their decision is going to be based upon how it advances their objectives or how it fits with their worldview. So I think that having a venue like that is important. The second thing that you'd need is you need some really good texts. You need some really good primary source documents to inform the discussion so that they're not just – and this is very helpful in making sure that they're not arguing with their 21st century selves. Mm-hmm. But the texts need to give them enough intellectual ammunition that they can make those arguments in something approaching the terms that they would have been made at the time. So so just to give an example, um, right now I'm running the um, Patriots, Loyalists, and Revolution in New York City uh, game, which is uh, essentially a meeting of the New York uh, Provincial Congress. Uh, they've read some John Locke. They've read um, some Samuel Johnson. Uh, they've read uh, some some controversies over the uh, Tea Acts, uh, contro- and, and and now they're getting ready to start to debating these things as if they were members of the Provincial Congress in early 1775. So there's a, a moment of crisis, um, social, political, but also intellectual, which is which is going on. Right. Yeah. And I, I think that, that that game is an excellent example of, of everything that you need to make a, a good reacting game. That The other thing that that, that game has uh, really powerfully that, that's an ingredient of every reacting game is you sort of – you need those those big ideas, those philosophical – that clash of philosophies. You also need a venue where low politics is possible. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and in that game, there's plenty of low politics. There's mobbing. The British might show up. Um, there, there's all sorts of, of shenanigans. Um, because I think that this is one of the, the, the meta lessons that reacting teaches students, is that um, history is not just driven by people's baser motives. Um, ideas are important. Um, on the other hand, history is not just driven by ideas, but baser motives are important too. It's a, yeah. uh, it's a very, and, 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 it's a, very it's a very uncertain hybrid of the two, and it's right. hard to tell where one leaves off and the other begins. Right. I hope, and, I hope and that's I, what they get I, out of it. Right. Uh, well, and I, and I think that that's why. And an essential ingredient in any, any reacting game is you have at least one session of, de- of formal debriefing after the game is over, because a lot of times, as the instructor, the you're you automatically put dots like that together. But sometimes undergraduates, it's very helpful for you to help them notice that uh, in in terms of, and the way that this usually comes through in a debriefing is you go around and just ask why people did the things they did. Mm-hmm. And sometimes they did them for very lofty reasons 
because property is a sacred right of man, mm-hmm. uh, and other times it's for uh, for for rather base ones. You mm-hmm. know, I I hated him because he ripped me off, mm-hmm. and uh, and I, I wanted my vengeance. And there's always the um, there's always a twist. There's always a die roll, very uh, very nerdy to some people, but there's always a chance. I mean, in the reacting games I've played, there is chance. Uh, in the Athens game, I just completed. Um, there was a character who really wants to be a tyrant uh, and has made an, essentially an argument on behalf of tyranny over uh, as better than democracy. Uh, but they died. Uh, they died at sea. Um, so there's no tyranny in Athens. And likewise, um, you can pl- as a loyalist, you can plan for the New, York, uh, the New York to be occupied by the British, but something might go wrong. It might not happen and so on. Yeah, and and this is one of the other meta lessons that reacting teaches, I think, which is it it very powerfully reintroduces contingency. Yeah. Into and 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 usually the die rolls don't happen until very close to the end of the game. Correct. Uh, yeah. So so that so that the the outcome really matters to them by that point, uh, which way things are going to go, and this more powerfully than anything else I've ever done, it is an antidote to the idea that history is driven by inevitabilities and fate, uh, mm-hmm. and of course things turned out this way. They had to. But on the flip side, I think that it's also an antidote to the idea that um, that it's just randomness, mm-hmm. that, uh, that that anything could happen at any moment for, for any reason. But uh, one of the, the phrases of the art for reacting uh, is the plausibility corridor, <laughs> which it, which is how how many counterfactual how many potential counterfactual outcomes do you want to allow your game to have and uh, and this is largely a matter of author preference mm-hmm. um, and and it, it's it's at what point does it start to become uncomfortable for you as a historian to to widen out the plausibility corridor too far um, but but having some room for for a different outcome than the historical outcome is really critical, I think, for making a reacting game work because it honors the efforts of the students. If mm-hmm. if they work really hard on it for, for two and a half, three weeks, and then at the end you're like, and and so the war ends and you lose, uh, as, as it had to be. Um, that really undermines it. But again, that's why you have the debriefing at the end so that you can point out any differences between the way the game developed and the way that the history developed. Yeah, yeah. Um, Obviously, then, um, just from some of the things you're saying, it's clear that once you've written a reacting game, you've just completed probably the first of three or four parts. Um, How long does it take, in your experience, um, once you've drafted a reacting game, what's the next step? Well, um... One of the things that I usually tell game authors is playtest early, playtest often. So in terms of drafting a reacting game, um, I would say the first step is is getting a prototype that sort of works and trying it out in one of your classes because students are going to tell you way more 
about what works and doesn't work in your game than you're ever going to figure out staring at that page or that screen. So, um, and, and, and some things will work and some things won't work. And, and most excitingly, sometimes things happen that you didn't plan to happen because hmm. the creativity of students pushes the game in, in directions that you're not expecting. Um, so I think that the, the early stages of a game, you run it in your own classroom and, and, and you, you try to debug it and you try to, to, to push forward the stuff that works. Um, the, at some point in there, the, the good thing to do is to, to contact me and let me know that you're working on the game so that I can put it up on our big list of reacting games, mm-hmm. uh, which is on the website. That This way, people aren't working, aren't working in parallel. Mm-hmm. I, I, I try to, to, to play matchmaker sometimes. Or um, when that doesn't work, to let whoever came first uh, put a marker down on an idea. Um, but it's a it's not a marker that lasts forever if if you're if you're stalled out then then the marker disappears um contacting other becoming part of the reacting community uh we we have an active discussion board we have regional and national conferences um that's the best place to pick up play testers which are the reacting equivalent of of peer reader of your first peer readers Mm -hmm. Um, and uh, there, every July, there's a game development conference, which this year will be at Newman University in Kansas. Um, that's a place to face-to-face shop new ideas and, and to play test rough cuts. Um, the the moment where we, as the editorial board, give a new game a lot of scrutiny is when people apply to have it uploaded to our game library. Because that's the point at which we're we're saying this is this is a reacting game. Um, for that, it goes through a peer review process. We give each game at that point um, usually about three different peer readers um, look at it or, and or use it in their classes and give feedback and 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 give reports to the editorial board. Um, that's the first round of peer review. And then once a game is in, in the game library, people start to use it in their classes. They start to download it. It starts to be played at conferences. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of informal peer review that comes out of that. And then when the author and the thinks that it's ready for publication, it goes through another peer review process before we approve it for publication to send on to... Huh. W.W. W. Norton, which is our, our main publishing partner. Um, but if W.W. W. Norton passes on it, we have set up the Reacting Consortium Press, um, which is an opportunity for games that they don't see a big market for, mm-hmm. for us to be able to, to, to put out under our own imprint. Uh, yeah, I, I, I'm, it's always stunning to me. I've I, I played uh, now several games uh, that are on the... Um, on the, uh, the the site, but which are not published, and it's astonishing to me that some of them haven't been published, like the Constitution game, which is seems to me I, it's perfect. Why does it? <laughs> what further editing does it need to needs to be done? Um, but it's interesting to hear. It, it'll make Pat Kobe very happy to hear that. Yeah. It, it, it's actually going into copy editing at Norton very soon. Excellent, excellent. Um, what? Um, 
what are some of the are there any idiosyncratic things that you like to do in a game um, that um, or any sort of Proctor-esque style that you have um yeah, I, I think that one thing that I might like more than a lot of game designers, although I'm certainly not the only game designer that does this, is I really like to, to put players in, um, in moral dilemmas uh-huh. where, um, where, the, where they're really pulled between two things that might work, uh, that, that might allow them to fulfill their objectives but that both of them have also significant potential downsides. Uh, so, so, so I like, to, I like to, to put players in that position where they're really going to be torn rather than that they're going to be powerfully pushing for something. So, so as a consequence in, in my games, and again, I don't, I don't think I'm the only author that does this, um, every player has some degree of indeterminacy. There's something that they have not uh, do not have a set idea about. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing that I think that I do more than than a lot of other people, and this this sort of came from that survey that I did. One thing that all reacting people agree on after they've played reacting is that special powers are cool. Having a role with special powers is cool. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, so I try to give special powers to, to anybody that I can. Um, but if everybody has special powers that they're going to be using all the time, yeah. it kind of becomes a crazy gonzo game, and it's hard to run, and students don't know what's happening. So as a consequence, a lot of the special powers that I give um, are really sort of inconsequential and, mm. and, and minor. Um, so, so they can do it. it but, but even if it's minor, they, players think that it's fun to have one. Cool. Give, give, us um, a, give us an example of that, if you could. Uh, of, of a special power that's minor? Yeah, or, yeah, that, that you've included in a, a character. Okay, well, well, one for the, the, the secession game, which is set in Kentucky in 1861. Um, one of the options that players have is, is they're, they're mostly Kentucky state legislators, um, but if they decide that they can't get what they want in the legislature, they can resign and form a militia. Mm-hmm. Um, so a whole bunch of players uh, – well, in, in order to do this, though, you have to have past military experience. Um, so lots of players, maybe a third of the players in the game, have military experience and they can do this. Um, most of them don't. Over the course of the game, so a lot of them, a lot of the players who can do this, it's actually going to be counterproductive in terms of their other objectives to pull the trigger, uh, literally, uh, and 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 leave the legislature and form a militia. So they have this special power, but I think that a lot of those players really like having it, even if they know they're never going to use it. Uh-huh. Um, there, there, there's something that's just fun about having it to begin with. Uh-huh. Um, as we're moving towards the end of our conversation, um, what are some things that uh, reacting can't do? What are some scenarios that you wish reacting could cover, but you haven't been able to figure out a way of squeezing them into it? 
Um, and I, I don't mean just like sort of big social historical movements that happen uh, underneath the surface, but just uh, things are a little bit more easier to put into a game experience, but uh, you haven't yet figured out a way of doing it. Well, I, well, I think there, there are sort of two different categories you're talking about. One category is the stuff that might make a good reacting game at some point. We just, we just haven't figured out how to do that. The, okay. the other are things that I think just wouldn't be good reacting games. Um, the, that latter category, I think that one thing that reacting is not particularly good at is showing a sequence helping students learn about a sequence of, of related, um, complicated events. Like, I, I don't think that, it, that a game running from 1932 to 1941 called The New Deal, <laughs> um, you know, would be a good way to learn, if you had it as a learning objective, um, what all of the different New Deal agencies were and what they did. Mm-hmm. Um, be, it, it could be a good way to learn about the politics of the New Deal, um, but but it wouldn't be good for for like learning the alphabet soup of agencies or something like that. Um, so be, because the players could take it in all kinds of different directions, and there might not be a second New Deal in your game or or something like that. So so I think that it's not that great for that. Um, in terms of things that are that are difficult for reacting to do historical developments um, there are a few that I can talk about that we're wrestling with right now one is how do you have a game about racism yeah that students are able to play and learn a lot from without shutting down because it's so offensive mm-hmm. or without breaking character because they need to be offensive or without being offended. Um, you found, so, so, I, so that's tough. Yeah, you found a way of doing that in the Kentucky game, which I thought was impressive. Well, the, but the way the, that I do it in the Kentucky game is, is the students need to read a bunch of primary documents that have racist arguments in them. Mm-hmm. And then they take uh, a quiz, a reading comprehension quiz, before the game starts. And if they do really well on that section of the quiz, um, they get a card that shows that they have mastery of racist rhetoric. And they can use that card at some point in their game to multiply their votes. And that is, so the, that, that is the race card. The race card, yeah. right. So, that, so the thing that I'm trying to illustrate in that is that racist rhetoric has real power. And that racist rhetoric is used by everybody on every side of the secession question, um, and pretty much on every side of any political question of the mid-19th century in the United States. Um, And they're reading the documents so that they have the experience of seeing what those arguments look like on paper. The the flip side of this, and, and this is a criticism that it's gotten, is that in the game, because the game is in the Kentucky legislature, there's no one to speak back to that position. Um, the, the game's operating under the premise, which I think is historically well-founded, that everybody in that room is some stripe of racist. Um, there are no anti-racists in the game. 
so so a criticism that's been leveled against the game is the anti-racist argument isn't made um and and that the race card is sort of dodging the the argument over racism by by uh you know by by abstracting it with the race card and on some level that's true because but that's because that's not what I wanted to write a game about I wanted to write a game about the secession crisis right um and uh so dealing with racist rhetoric forthrightly is a thing that um a game by a good friend of mine Mark Higby uh, about Frederick Douglass uh-huh. deals with, but figuring out how that plays in a in a multitude of classrooms um, in a way that's going to be almost always positive for students is 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 a tough order. Uh-huh. Um, final thoughts on reacting, uh, Nick Proctor. What do you see as the next step? Uh, is there a next step, or do you just want to keep on doing the things that you've been doing, uh, more of them and even better? Well, that's a, that's most of it, uh, because reacting has been expanding exponentially mm-hmm. for several years. Uh, so that, so I sort of see three big new frontiers for reacting. One is for reacting is used at a lot of liberal arts colleges, and it's used in a lot of honors programs at big colleges. Um, I think one of the next frontiers is to make reacting more prominent in gen ed survey courses. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that'll be a big deal. Um, give, thing number t- Give me an example, like like uh, just a sort of intro class, not a history class, just a gen ed sort of... Well, a, a, a history class that's taken overwhelmingly by non-history majors. Got it, fine, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, uh, because I think that those often are the students that are that are very heavily engaged by reacting, because yeah. reacting is showing them history is not what you thought it was. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and uh, so, so it's very exciting for them. So that's one is is for to make larger inroads in into gen ed. Um, second is uh, in terms of making inroads into gen ed to do more of it outside of the United States. Uh, there are a number of, of countries where there are a handful of dedicated faculty that are trying to push things along. Um, Switzerland, Norway, Canada, Japan, China, New Zealand, Australia. Um, but I think that figuring out how to make reacting work in uh, a curriculum that's not a U.S. curriculum is a big exciting challenge of the future. Uh, I guess the third thing that's really something that I am pushing game authors um, to do more of is uh, is to have more games that are set outside outside of the West, outside of Europe and the United States, uh, bo- both in time and space. So I I think that there's a lot of work to be done there. My guest today has been Nick Proctor, uh, professor of history at Simpson College in Indianola, Iowa. We've been talking about reacting to the past. Nick, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. It was a real pleasure. For more historical thinking, go to our Facebook page, where you can comment on today's program and suggest ideas for programs to come. Please subscribe to us on Apple iTunes. 
And if you like what you've heard, please, please leave a review so that others can find us. Our program's editor is John Ruddat. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Talk to you next week. Thank you.